0: all right welcome to friends of aquinas episode four i feel truly honored to welcome onto the show dr e michael jones best-selling catholic author lecturer and editor of culture wars magazine and a highly influential intellectual within the dissident right right wing sphere dr jones welcome
1: thank you good to be here
0: well thank you very much and i'd like to open with a topic that you've discussed at length and which seems to grow be more relevant every moment, and that is the topic of the white man the so-called white man uh, much of the political debate centers around that nowadays it seems Americans and Europeans are uh, are kind of attacked as white people and the response from much of the dissident movement the in the right has been to stand that ground right stand the ground uh, as the white man so as an introduction could you talk about the origins of the term and how it's uh, used as a political weapon in America, but also uh, in Europe, if you have any insights on that.
1: Yeah, well, the idea of white uh, as applied to people uh, is, is fairly new. It comes from England. Uh, it's obviously it's an English word. And it, uh, if you look it up in the OED, the first mention of it is a play uh, about Virginia. And so we're talking about uh, the beginning, early 17th century. Uh, and uh, the where they start talking, there's somebody he starts talking about white people. The fun, first fundamental fact we have to realize is that nobody was white until they came in contact with people who were black, and this has certainly happened in the Virginia colony at this point. Uh, the The workforce was uh, half or composed of uh, indentured servant, servant servants, indentured slaves, like the. Uh, the prisoners, the Jacobites from Scotland, uh, and African slaves. And in order to divide the workforce, the uh, British colonialists put labels on them, namely white and black, so that they wouldn't associate, they wouldn't get together and create wages, uh, ask for demands uh, higher wages. In other words, have a unified workforce. Oh, that's where it began. It only has relevance to British colonies, and the United States was one of them. Uh, because you ha- And it only has relevance uh, to America, w- largely in the South, where most of the black slaves were. But over a period of time, it became uh, more and more important. Uh, and what you had eventually was a conflict in America between two regions. Uh, it's called the Civil War, the North and the South, uh, where you had basically two competing paradigms of identity. Uh, in the north, in the south, you had, uh, as I said, black and white. There was a large number of black slaves. Certain c- counties and places, like Alabama, the whites were completely outnumbered uh, by a larger black population. But in the north, you had a different story, and these were largely immigrants from uh, Europe. Uh, and over the course of the 19th century, huge numbers of Europeans came to the United States, uh, and largely from uh, Germany, Ireland at the middle of the 19th century, and then toward the end of the 19th century, you had Russian, uh, Poland, uh, Italy, Southern Europe. And what you had basically was two different paradigms of ethnic identity. We're talking about identity now. Mm -hmm. So in the north, uh, you had cities like Chicago, Philadelphia, uh, Boston. Uh, the book I wrote about this is called The Slaughter of Cities, Urban Renewal as Ethnic Cleansing, where basically you had co- ethnic colonies. So you had Chinatown, obviously that's China, Germantown, Town, uh, Jewtown, uh, and so on and so forth. Every city had these type of things. You had Dago Hill in, um, in St. Louis. Uh, you had ethnic colonies, and these people uh, basically spoke their native language, lived with each other, and were sort of at odds with the America at large. OK, so the, the crucial the crucial turning point in this regard came in 1954. The Supreme Court comes down with a decision called Brown versus School Board, which says that segregation is illegal. Now, segregation only existed in the south. It did not exist in the north. You had you had, If you want to call it ethnic self-segregation in cities in the north, whereas if some, if a, Czech, uh, if a German moved into Cicero, which is a Czech neighborhood, the, the, the Czechs would uh, throw rocks through his windows and drive him out of town because it was just an exclusively German operation. And what happened with uh, – at the same time that you have basically this black and white decision being fostered by the federal government – as two terms of identity, you have a book coming out called Protestant Catholic Jew, uh, which is about a theory called the triple melting pot, which says basically that after three generations in America, no matter where you come from, uh, you end up uh, assimilating into one of three ethnic groups based on religion, Protestant, Catholic and Jew. And so America is a lot like Yugoslavia, where you had three ethnic groups, Serb, Croat and Muslim. These two paradigms are competing to this day. To this day, I get into arguments with white boys like Jared Taylor, <laughs> uh, uh, Frode Mitjord in Norway, and uh, various other people. Okay, and what happened over this period of time is that uh, uh, ethnic identity uh, in Europe uh, evaporated. Uh, but but if by that we mean the religious basis for ethnic identity. So what you had, uh, after 500 years of Protestantism, Protestantism evaporated. Now, we still have a Church of England, uh, but it doesn't have a whole lot of effect on uh, people's uh, behavior as far as I can tell. Uh, what happened in Scandinavia is even more dramatic. So Frodi Mitjord is a Norwegian. he was baptized a Lutheran and as he became when he became an adult, the Lutheran Church was disestablished. And so what you had was a massive identity crisis at this point. in Europe, Corresponding to a massive migration crisis, which was orchestrated by, by the Jews, uh, using the uh, disruption in the Middle East wars that the United States created as the, the cause of weaponizing that migration. And you had people who simply, because they lost their identity, they had to come up with identity and they started identifying themselves as white. Well, I, I kept telling, tell, sounding frody, uh, the same thing happened in Croatia. A guy I knew who was a Croat, well, Croat means you're Catholic. Well, if you abandon the Catholic faith, what's your identity? Well, he became a white guy. So this, this is the crisis that happened across the board. And now you've got people who are identifying this way. Now, this, this, is, this is tragic. I, I'm talking about, let's go to a, an event like Charlottesville, the protest. Uh, Mayor, there's all kinds of shady things going on here. I just saw today a link saying that there were Ukrainian Nazis involved in Charlottesville. So it was probably <laughs> a setup. Okay, But anyway, these guys, they show up. They, they are basically Protestants who don't go to church anymore. Now they consider themselves white. And because they consider themselves white, they walk right into a trap. Because now, just as in the 19th century, these terms have always had value judgments appended to them. So in the 19th century, if you were in the South, white was good and black was bad. In the 21st century, if you live in America, white is bad and black is good. It's all a form of some type of social engineering. These are pseudo identities that are forms of social engineering and psychological warfare, and they got weaponized at charlottesville where basically uh the white boys got uh thought they were peaceful demonstrators they got lured into a trap and basically um, richard spencer handed out spears and he told them to charge the machine gun nest the machine gun nest in this instance was the uh, legal system uh, a jewish lady I I, this if I tell you the way she describes herself, uh, it'll be reason for you to get banned. So I'm not (laughs) going to say it's in the article. But anyway, she filed all kinds of lawsuits against these guys. Uh, We have. uh, So during this period of time, uh, just as the white uh, black paradigm is rising, you have in many ways the collapse of the triple melting pot paradigm, if by triple melting pot you mean three equal groups, Protestant, Catholic, Jew, the main group being the Protestant group. That group has uh, has suffered significant loss of power. The Jewish group has arisen in power to the point where they all have Jewish privilege. And so they now can just attack anyone with impunity, uh, anyone they don't like with impunity. That's what happened after Charlottesville, and the key uh, factor here is the term "white." If mm. they can, if they can, if they can uh, put that label on you, you're done. You're cooked, because "white" means white supremacy. That's exactly what it means, and that's exactly what happened. Uh, what uh, St. Louis? We went through this orgy. The same thing happened in England, where uh, a certain group of people wanted to tear down statues. Yes and and in st louis it was the statue of st louis well wait a minute i mean i can understand maybe general lee uh, he's associated with the confederacy and um, slavery what's louis the ninth got to do with anything <laughs> well it's because uh uh it was the real players in this It wasn't black and white it was catholic and jew this was a catholic jewish battle uh but no one was going to say that until I got in, there was a guy who calls himself a Muslim, uh, I assume he is, okay, but he was leading the charge, and he, the main weapon here was to say all those people who are praying to defend the statue are white supremacists. <laughs> oh, wait a minute, why, why are these white supremacists praying the rosary? This is not what, no, it was identity theft. And that, I mean, to sum this whole thing up, what we have here is a classic form of identity theft. Whereas, if, if they put these labels on you, you're done. And the best thing uh, or the worst thing you can do is put the label on yourself, because then you're you're guaranteeing that your project would fail. So, because I changed the label in St. Louis from white or white supremacist to Catholic, uh, the Catholics won that battle. That statue is still standing.
0: Well, uh, I can tell you, unfortunately, Dr. Jones, that uh, that kind of American mentality of white versus black and all that stuff—it it is already tr- it is already encroaching upon Europe, and you see, you know, people in in Germany, in in Spain, in Portugal, uh, just all over Europe, being identified as you know these just blank slate whites who are also being signed up for, uh, you know, the whatever the supposed atrocity is at any given geographical location and um, the way i see it is that many of europeans who are now being born you know they're increasingly on social media that is very american or you know other uh, by american that's a bit of a euphemism right um but uh, that that is increasingly American, and it is increasingly less about um, it is increasingly less national and uh, ethnic in a sense. And so what we have is these is this generation of Europeans who are like ethnic Americans almost. You know, you see right. them, they start behaving like Americans, right. they start talking like Americans, they all speak English probably better than their native tongue. A lot of the I'm exaggerating, but that kind of deal. And so that already has had such an effect, and I just fear that the effect is going to be. Uh, Ever so increasing into the future in Europe.
1: Yeah, it is because what you're talking about is either loss of identity or identity theft, and Mm -hmm. and the the main vehicle for this is American culture. But uh, look, I had to do this. I had so I uh, Sam Francis was a uh, now here's interesting because I'm going to have to describe him. I'm going to have to use labels to describe him. Okay, so if Sam Francis was a writer, okay, that's neutral. He was a conservative, and at that point, we're starting to get into value judgments here. He wrote uh, for the Washington Times, had a column there. And uh, William F. Buckley, who was the kind of Pope of conservatism, or was here, uh, excommunicated, got him fired, got him fired. And at this point, he went through an identity crisis and he became a white guy, uh, because he's from the South. He didn't know, he, he, couldn't, he couldn't call himself a conservative anymore. He could if he wanted to but he didn't want to and so he called himself a white guy and then he up and up and dies right before he died he converted to Catholicism mm-hmm. died so it makes it It was a real interesting story he talked to me about his whole life uh, and I showed up I'm, I'm one of the speakers at the San Francis Memorial and I stood up there and I said now wait a minute I, I, I'm I'm, I don't want to cause any, I want to collaborate here with, with you guys, but I, I'm not white. I'm, 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 bi, I'm biracial. I'm biracial. I'm Irish and German. And I come from a different part of the country. And up north, you're not, you know, you were one of those groups. The great, uh Moment was when Martin Luther King showed up in Chicago and accused them of segregation. And the black ministers told him to go back home because there's no such thing as segregation in Chicago. So, what his assistant said down south, you was either black or white, you wasn't none of this Polish or Irish or any of that. Well, up th- that's right. Uh, so up north, I'm trying to explain to them that I'm it's different. I mean, we can collaborate, but the main point of this of my talk was. That uh, If you're using these categories, you can't understand the real dynamic of history, uh, which is uh, religious, it's based on Logos, and the contest is between Logos and anti-Logos, and the main force for anti-Logos in our country right now today are the Jews and they were the main force 2000 years ago when they crucified Jesus Christ and and overthrew, uh, uh, cu- killed the Logos incarnate and started their attack on Logos, which they've been continued with the Jewish revolutionary spirit for 2000 years. Well, th- it was as if a bomb had gone off in the room. I mean, Taki was there, the Greek guy. He says, we're all gonna be arrested. So they, it was scandalous, it was, it was so scandalous. But all I'm trying to do is uh, avoid identity theft. Yes. And I think that conservatism was a form of identity theft. And I think I was right because I think conservatism has disappeared. It's an obsolete ideology. It's not giving people their identity anymore. It disappeared when Donald Trump got elected. It was created in America as a substitute for a genuine American conservatism, which was known as America First, which was the anti-war movement during the 1930s, based in the Midwest, uh, based on manufacturing rather than finance. Uh, Detroit was probably its capital because you had Henry Ford there, you had Father Coughlin there, and you had Charles Lindbergh, grew up there, even though he was associated with St. Louis afterwards. What, at that point, we had, the ability these people had the ability to talk about Jewish influence in our culture and that was obliterated in one day with uh, Pearl Harbor and those people were demonized and they are demonized to this day and I'm saying we our minds have been captured by these ideologies largely the the racial ideology which basically disguises what is happening and that's why I think it's so important for the oligarchs to impose it on us
0: yeah, you spoke there. Can I pick it up on the industry question and Ford and in industry? And you often speak of the Catholic understanding of value, you know, how value is a surplus of labor. You know, ducats don't grow out of ducats. They, they can only grow out of labor. So the, the present economies, though, of Europe and the United States uh, are what you are describe, and I would definitely agree, are usurious economies. They don't really produce anything apart from pieces of paper that increase ducats. So... Uh, uh, how was it that the West, that once produced so much, has been so industrious and laborious in the early parts of the twentieth century and before? At some point, there is something happened. All that production has started to be shipped overseas. What happened? How did that happen?
1: Well, the most recent uh, catastrophe was the Reagan-Thatcher era, uh, where basically uh, they turned on the manu- they turned on manufacturing they handed manufacturing over to the looters and i'm talking about the people who engaged in leverage buyouts who basically weren't doing providing any value not only were they not providing any value they were destroying the instruments that did create value namely the industrial plant of both england and the united states it was a horrible horrible situation and they basically load so the leverage buyouts come in the king uh, the, who the english guy i forget who it was uh forget his name, but anyway, come in, load companies down with debt, take that money as huge fees, and then the company goes belly up, and in the meantime, we're going to outsource everything to cheaper labor markets in Asia, mostly China. That has had a catastrophic effect on the West, on the, on the working class, on the ability to produce wealth, on e- every aspect of it. And probably one of the major reasons for the complete deracination of what used to be called the working class, both in England and uh, America, mm-hmm. I, I just I, to give you one is I just mentioned Detroit, the manufacturing powerhouse, uh, uh, the backbone of America. First, okay, I was just I was in uh, southwestern Michigan just a week ago, and what was I going for? Like the opening of a factory? No, I was going to the Hemp Fest. So what happened in Michigan? They legalized marijuana. <laughs> and now there's this big festival every year where you go and and I remember uh, marijuana from the 60s. This is completely different. I have never, I, I got stoned just walking around in the woods. <laughs> this stuff is so powerful and there's so much smoke. So, but, but the point I'm trying to make here is what you did was you allowed Soros money and Soros was behind this, uh, to basically overturn the marijuana laws and create a completely docile lumpen proletariat That's a fight. That, yeah that that produces nothing produces nothing.
0: That makes sense. And uh, in terms of, um, you know, you mentioned there are Thatcher, of course, and the state. This is what uh, interests me, and how you see it. So the, the kind of the practical relationship then between church and state at this point, you know, obviously in the, at the point of Thatcher and post Vatican II, the the state and the church have finally been kind of severed. In my in my view, there is really no relationship between church and state now. So, um, and separation of church and state. In, uh, has been condemned by the Church multiple times, from Pope Gelasius the First writing to the Emperor, Pius the Ninth, syllabus of errors, Pius the Tenth. Um, so, how do you see that relationship between Church and State on the practical level in the twenty-first century? You know, if if we did have a religious Renaissance, do we have a blueprint of the relationship between Church and State, and if, if from history, and if we do, how would we modify it?
1: The Church, uh, the Catholic teaching is that the Church is to the state what the soul is to the body. Okay, the soul is the form of the body. The soul informs the body. Okay, so the teaching of the church has to inform the practice of the state. Now, there was a time after, uh, I would say, uh, the the big crisis of the 20th century was the stock market crash of 1929. The church stepped in and wrote uh, Pius XI, wrote uh, Quadrigesimo Anno, Mm -hmm. 40 40 years after uh, Leo XIII's encyclical, in which he basically uh, described what a just society should look like and condemned both um, capitalism and communism. Mm -hmm. It was Jesus Christ was crucified between two thieves. One was capitalism, the other was communism. Uh, Communism, or socialism in England is the reaction that the, the state, takes after it's been abused by capitalism capitalism leads to socialism leads to communism so if you want the the uh this was real because i remember as a child uh my my friend uh would his father would go to meetings run by jesuits in philadelphia where they would discuss uh, they would he was uh, the labor steward for the uh, factory where he worked and they would sit down with uh, management and they would talk about how they could collaborate so that everybody works, makes out better. This is exactly the type of collaboration that Christianity enables. It's the exact antithesis of the class war that communism uh, promoted, and basically uh, um, English capitalism created. It created a class war. And it created that by uh, driving down wages to the point where uh, you could not live on those wages. Now, this this has been all. It's always been a problem. If you if you read my book, Barren Metal, you can read about the same thing happened in Florence. Florence store, the Medici got rich because they were actually made things. They made cloth. Cloth was the beginning of the money economy in Europe. It was the beginning of great advances in bookkeeping. Double-entry bookkeeping was created in Italy, basically, so that the the, the Italians and the Germans could uh, could do commerce without carrying big bags of gold around. Uh, This is the type of thing that arose, but the problem is always the same. Every country, it's always the same. As soon as some guy like the Medici gets rich, they take their money and they start lending it out at usury. And at that point, the whole Mm -hmm. system contracts and then it collapses. That's what happened in England uh, after the Napoleonic Wars, uh, when the Rothschilds, when Nathan uh, Rothschild got established, over the course of the 19th century you had the same story over and over again of the uh, upper class the aristocracy in england just full of pride in the british empire they conquered napoleon and i want to build a really big house out in the country because (laughs) i own lots of land but i don't have any money i know i'll go to the jew and i'll borrow money and that's exactly what happened So the classic example was the Churchill family, uh, where Randolph Churchill uh, uh, dies. First of all, he's got to find an American wife because they're running out of money. So he goes to America and finds Jenny and brings her back. But he keeps borrowing money and he ends up dying. Sixty thousand pounds in debt to Natty Rothschild. Over the course of the 19th century, that's exactly what happened to the aristocracy. They all went into debt and the Jews took over their property. And they had, by the end of the century, I think 40% of the Almanach de gotha, in other words, people who have titles in England, don't have property. Because they all lost it because of debt, because they did not produce things now some of them did some of them were smart enough to get into the factory business and create factories and put their wealth to work and and they they made money the rest of them went into debt that's exactly what happened in in America during the Reagan era the they, they wanted uh, the, this also corresponds to the rise of Jewish power in the United States the battle be, was between Main Street which is Detroit and Wall Street, which is New York, which is Jewish. Hmm. And Main Street believed in manufacturing, and Wall Street believed in getting your ducats to copulate faster than Laban's use in Rams. And the result was the Jewish takeover of American culture during this period of time.
0: You spoke there of the uh, Reagan era, and uh, once again, I want to kind of bring it back to the 21st century and see what we can uh, see what your outlook is. So, what is your assessment of the modern or uh, current leaders of Europe? I'm I'm, you know, I'm thinking Trudeau, Boris Johnson, Merkel, Macron, Zelensky. You know, somehow they all feel alike to me. Yeah, somehow why. <laughs> somehow they have the same foul stench coming yeah, from I all of them. Why. The stench yeah, well, of
1: globalism. Who are they at heart? what are their they're, goals? They're all puppets of of uh, of the World Economic Forum. Klaus Schwab let the cat out of the bag in one of those videos it's on YouTube. In one of those videos, he said, "Yes, we've uh, we've been uh, promoting these young leaders and." Uh, <laughs> And one of them is uh, Prime Minister Trudeau and Macron. He named all of these people who are all puppets of the oligarch. Well, thanks, Klaus. I got, I'm i sure Macron and Trudeau were really happy about that. No, it's a tragedy. Uh, basically, this is the problem. That was the crisis in France. That was what led to the Yellow Vest crisis. That Macron. Every country in the world has the same problem. You have representatives, elective representatives who represent the interest of the oligarchs and they don't represent the interest of their own people. That is classic. Canada has the worst dictator in the world right now, <laughs> Justin Trudeau. It's appalling what this man is doing there, you know. Uh, so to on the other side of the coin, uh, who's the only light that I can see here, aside from Vladimir Putin, is uh mr orban Viktor orban in hungary now he the last election Viktor orban went toe to toe with george soros george mm-hmm. soros is a hungarian jew uh, he spent enormous amounts of money in, in hungary and the hungarian people god bless them they stood up and elected orban because orban they understand that orban represents the interest of the hungarian people that's the simple equation. That's the same equation, that's the same issue throughout the entire world. I just, uh, come by contact in Australia, uh, uh, they were, you know, the Australians, you know, there they're, was a penal colony. You know, they, they, yeah. they stole Trevelyan's corn and they ended up when the ship, uh, the, the prison ship got bound for Botany Bay and sometimes I think they never got over that. They have this mentality. Well, there's mm. something we really should talk about is why do you, why are that one of the three of the worst countries in the world or former British colonies, uh-huh. Ireland, Canada, and Australia, they are the most two, two of the three of the countries where they have the most totalitarian governments, mm. uh, governments, uh, there have complete contempt for their own people. How did that happen? Is it, is, is it, uh, the colonial mentality that they had for being so longer, so long under English rule—I don't know—but my Australian friend stood up. Everybody it's com, political convention stood up, and he said, "The main issue is representative government. Our government does not represent our interests." Everybody who they were called apathetic before, that and they suddenly stood up and cheered. That's the issue. That's the issue that we have to—we have to pursue in the United States now you're seeing the demise of the empire, uh, in things like, uh, like Roe versus Wade, the abortion decision is probably going to be overturned. Yes. This is a great moment of opportunity, uh, because the Jews are going crazy at this point and they're, they're freaking out and they're saying abortion is a fundamental Jewish value. And if you make abortion illegal, Jews will not be allowed to practice their religion. Now, this isn't just one guy. This is <laughs> the entire demonstration mm-hmm. in Washington. It's all these Jewish women holding up this sign. A rabbi stands up and he gives a lecture saying, this is absolutely true. And then he says, every single Jewish group agrees with this. Well, what you're really saying is that with Roe versus Wade, the abortion decision of 1973, the Jews imposed their religion on everybody in the United States of America. Well, why didn't you tell us that's back then? (laughs) Because if you had said it back then, then there would have been a reaction, the appropriate reaction. But now uh, what you're seeing is that that has failed. That was basically an attempt to impose Jewish values on everyone, and after 50 years it failed. The Supreme Court is realistic enough to understand that, and they're basically going to put the matter back into, hand it over to the states. That is the end, that's the beginning of the end of this imperial overreach.
0: Is Putin any different? You mentioned there is him being perhaps the savior. Is Putin any different to any of these crooks?
1: Yes. Because he represents the interest of the Russian people. He is a he is a Russian patriot. And in that sense, he's like Orban, who is a Hungarian patriot. What we need are people who will represent their own people and not be adversaries whose job is to cripple and control their own people. What do you, I mean, look at the state of Michigan. You got three women running the state and now it's, uh, they're promoting marijuana and conspiracies. The FBI was going to kidnap the governor uh, or the the, uh, Michigan. These are people who see the people of the state of Michigan as their enemy. We, we can't go on electing people who perceive their own people as their enemy. And what is the main reason they get elected? It's Jewish money. It's IPAC.
0: Well, Dr. It's, it's, Jones, perhaps many of those people don't even view uh, Americans or the English or the Germans as their own people because they belong to a certain other demographic of people. Could that be also right. the case?
1: That's that is exactly the like case zelensky i think that is yeah, the right. prime
0: example right now he's right. sending I mean, ukrainians over to die by their thousands he doesn't care and why would that be i wonder
1: yeah because as even tacitus said that that these people only uh, they only respect their own ethnic group they don't have any concern for the common good the modern era began when napoleon went to the so-called sanhedrin in france and said, "Are you willing to support France?" And they sure, sure we are. jusqu'à la mort, unto death, we will support. It took about five minutes to realize that as soon as Napoleon emancipated the Jews, they started preying on the French people. This when he came back from the Battle of Jena. He comes into Strasbourg. He's getting nothing complaints from the but from the French who were saying the Jews are exploiting us now. The Jews view us as game, fair, fair game for their for their exploitation. That is, how many how many dual citizens do we have in the United States government? <laughs> how about how about uh, how about Jonathan Pollard, the greatest traitor in the history of the United States? Okay, Trump is doing everything within his power to basically do whatever the Jews want. And so Sheldon Adelson is a big contributor, he's a big casino magnate, and Sheldon tells him, "I want Jonathan Pollard free." Now the entire military uh, intelligence establishment was dead set against this because of the damage he did. Trump springs him. What happens then? Sheldon Adelson sends his private jet, picks up Jonathan Pollard, flies him to Israel, and who meets him at the bottom of the tar uh, on the tarmac? Benjamin Netanyahu as as a hero. <laughs> This man is a Jewish hero because he betrayed the United States of America. And then he goes on to give a speech two weeks later in which he said, it's the duty of every Jew to betray the country he lives in. What, we're supposed to ignore this? Uh, Like pretend like polite people don't bring this type of stuff up? Well, this is the problem. This is precisely the problem because that group of people who only represent their own interests has created a government that simply does not represent its people. It's that simple. Mm. And that's a problem because of the reach of the American empire, it has become a worldwide problem and certainly a problem in Europe, certainly a problem in Europe. Mm. The classic example being Germany where they've been subjected to ruthless social engineering at the hands of Jews who came there after the war, intent on vengeance, and basically crippled the German psyche. So now you have Germans like Olaf Scholz, this kind of zombie who is just sleepwalking uh, to war with uh, against Russia. This is completely against the interest of the German people. It was obvious that the main, one of the main reasons for uh, get, igniting a war in the Ukraine was to cut Germany off from Russian energy, which mm. is precisely what they did. Indeed. Precisely what they did. Germans turned off the pipeline themselves. This is crazy. But you. this is the pattern that has been established. You have this loyalty to some type of oligarchic elite that is der- determined to destroy you. This is crazy.
0: Yeah. and. <laughs> To kind of try to run away from this insanity with uh, all these insane wars of nation building and uh, destruction of anything that, that, that moves in the right direction, I'd like to appeal back to history and take a look at when uh, you know the Church leading Europe, a unified Europe and, and united Europe by the Church, led it into uh, wars against a common enemy. And I would like to address the period of the First Crusades. Uh, as, a, as a backdrop, very quickly, we have, of course, the, uh, the kind of a, a, a renaissance in terms of, not, not yet the renaissance, but a renaissance of a church thinking, that church must be independent. This is where uh, this movement comes along. The church must be independent. The state must not o- have an overbearing influence on the church. The opposite must be true. The church must lead the European uh, monarchs uh, you know, into a brighter future, effectively, and what the Church at that point said, look, can you stop killing yourself over pieces of land that you have claims on? Instead, could you please come together and um, into into this uh, holy army, shall we say, and go and fight for the holy land of God for the pilgrims? What is your assessment of that period leading up to the First Crusade and the First Crusade in general? What impact did it have on, on the shape of Europe and the Church?
1: Well, oh, uh, first of all, it created uh, fractional reserve banking because those, those nights uh, – this is a period where if you wanted to uh, take money, you had a big bag of gold. If you wanted to do commerce, you had to go to fairs and carry bags of gold. Uh, and you had to have knights to protect you and so on and so forth, mm-hmm. and suddenly they realized, look, I will, uh, you've got a branch in uh, over there, I will put my gold here, you give me a piece of paper, and then I'll hand the piece of paper in over there, and that way I won't be robbed by pirates. So that was one of the uh, great uh, benefits that came from this. But what you're talking about is a period, let's look, uh, go back uh, a couple centuries, and you have Europe simply being pillaged. Yes one way or the other <laughs> by one group or another so in the south it's the Saracens they're all constantly under attack by Muslim pirates and Muslim invasions uh in the north it's the Vikings uh and civilization is just struggling to emerge from this uh, because every time you know the harvest is ready these Vikings show up and burn everything down you got to run into a castle and and it's terrible you know yes. finally with with the the middle ages uh with the uh certainly by the 13th century you have the emergence of cities and the power in these cities rather than simply in isolated monasteries or castles and suddenly you have a a huge uh outpouring of of culture uh in in paris it was uh the basically the uh, adoption of aristotle Uh, Greek uh, thought, Logos, starts to flow into the academy, and you have people like Aquinas reading Averroes, uh, which is uh, uh, the translation, the Arabic reception of of Aquinas, and Mm -hmm. coming to unheard of breakthroughs. So uh, just to get, this is also manifested in art, probably manifested in art uh, even better. This is the time of Giotto and Giotto, uh, Giotto and Aquinas are almost contemporaries, and I'm saying that Giotto understood what Aquinas did, a complete revolution in aesthetics, away from Platonism, away from Platonism, because Platonism uh, had constricted thought, aesthetic thought, for centuries. He was a very influential creature, uh, uh, figure, and basically he was saying that uh, the mind imposed categories on reality. And it's to some extent that's true, like a temple. What's a temple? Greek temple. It's basically geometrical figures imposed in stone, okay? Triangle, circle, squares, and you put them yes. together and you have this combination of, of matter and form that is, is powerful, okay? There's no question it's powerful, but it's constricting. And it's not necessary anymore because uh, Plato didn't know about the incarnation. And if there is an incarnation, then there's a much more sophisticated way of dealing it, and you start to look to nature, and the form arises out of nature. So instead of existence, uh, essence being imposed on existence, existence is the cause of essence. Existence calls forth essence. Well, that's a complete revolution. Aquinas said that, it was Aquinas's metaphysics, a revolution in aesthetics that Giotto manifested. Giotto did a portrait of Aquinas, so I'm assuming that it's not so much that he read the Summa or something like that. I think this is what Italian culture was. It suffused this understanding of the incarnation and the ramifications of that suffused all of Italian culture, and suddenly someone realized, I can do painting based on this, and that guy was Giotto and suddenly instead of the background of just the gold background of the icon, he bro- Vasari says he broke with Greek models. The Greek model is the icon. You have a gold background instead of that. Now you have a, a scene in the background and suddenly you have psychological drama and basically the, uh, it's in the, the arena chapel. It's a beautiful chapel, but he's got all of these uh, 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 murals on the side of the chapel. And one of them is Christ asleep in the boat. And suddenly you've got all of the psychological drama now uh, that can be brought to painting never happened before, uh, culminating in Titian's uh, portrait uh, of uh, like uh, Noli Me Tangere, uh, Titian's Noli Me Tangere, an incredibly deep psychological understanding of love, sacred and profane love, which was one of his themes. All of this happened in Italy at the time because of this great breakthrough, and of course, it's going to have some type of geopolitical manifestation and so you've got the king of france basically uh a a, a rabbi comes to him nicholas donan he converted to catholicism he goes to uh pope uh he goes to um king king uh, louis the ninth the guy whose statue is in saint louis and uh goes to the he goes to the pope and asks the pope if he knows what's in the talmud and the pope says what's the talmud never heard of it (laughs) And so at this point when he finds out about the blasphemies he goes to turns to uh raymond of penaforte and says "Seize these books if they're if they're what he what this rabbi says is true i want you to burn them well the man who burned them was louis louis the ninth so you have this ability exactly what we lack of taking it to the people and preventing the people who are causing the constant cause of cultural subversion. We are now going to contain this group of people. We have a theory. It's called secret judeos non. No one's allowed to harm the Jew, but on the other hand, the Jew's not allowed to destroy your culture either. And we'll work out a modus vivendi and that all this enormous energy finally finds some outlet, outlet in a foreign policy, which is basically what we are going to do. We are going to contest the Muslim hegemony over the Holy Land, but uh, just as importantly, we're going to contest the Muslim hegemony over the Mediterranean. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're not going to allow them to take that place. So that led to the expansion of Europe, the Europe that basically ended up ruling the world because it was such a powerful enculturation of Christianity
0: yes and that was the same louis the ninth that you mentioned that took part in the seventh and the eighth crusades i believe also so you see that exactly what you're talking about manifested in his actions uh i wanted to before we move on because i want to talk about uh art as we spoke off air talk about art during the renaissance period um just as you know the high middle ages obviously in the renaissance it's not a not a hard divide but before we move on there I would like to ask you about where does that slander come from that that lots of people uh bring forward, which is that Christianity ultimately is incompatible with uh you know the ancients with the Greeks the Romans, etc., because Christians hated the Greeks and the Romans, they destroyed their temples, they burned their writings, and here you are saying that that effectively Europe is a fusion between Greece. Uh, and, and uh, between Greek, Greco-Roman thought and and uh, Christianity.
1: A Greco-Roman thought and he, the Hebrew scriptures. Yes. That's what Christianity yes, is. Yes. That's the synthesis. It happened long before. It happened with the Gospel of St. John. This is in my book, uh, Logos Rising, where you have the turning point uh, uh, basically in human history Okay, when Jesus Christ arrives on his, this earth and they're, the apostles, his followers, how, how do I talk about this? And of course, the first thing they're going to talk to, the group they're going to talk to is the Jews, the Hebrews, the Jews. No, let's call them Jews now. They're Jews now. Uh, and the Jews don't like it. <laughs> they don't want to hear it. And so Paul is expelled from the synagogue and he has a dream that there's someone calling him from across the Aegean. He says, well, I'm going to have to go and preach to the Greeks. And so he goes to the areopagus in athens and he, he gives the wrong speech he gives the speakers the ephesus speech the ephesus speech is basically the ephesus is controlled by silversmiths who create little idols of diana with 12 breasts i mean that's really a cute chick with 12 breasts <laughs> and they make money by that and they're idol worshippers. and he goes to the areopagus well they're philosophers and he says, you know, you're idol, uh, you shouldn't worship idols, and I wanna tell you about Jesus Christ. Uh, he, he was crucified, but he rose from the dead. We're like, Wait a minute, slow down, what's this? <laughs> and they all say basically, yeah, well, we'll talk to you about that some other time, and they walk out, because it's the wrong speech. You can't do that. You have to have some type of preparation, and I think that the man who understood that was St. John because he wrote a metaphysical prologue to his gospel, which was different than the gospel of Matthew, which is a long genealogy of Hebrew dudes that these guys are not going to know about. And in the, in the beginning, there was Logos, and Logos is God, and Logos is with God. Now, if he, if Paul had said that at the Areopagus, that would have been led to a really interesting dis- discussion because that first sentence in the beginning was Logos is, a, is a, an echo of the first sentence in the Bible of Genesis, which says, in the beginning, God created heaven and earth. So now we've got a bridge to the Greeks, a, a bridge to the entire world, because now you have a metaphysical foundation for how you're going to talk to people. And that, that's what is necessary. That's what allowed Europe to triumph. Over the entire world. That's why, in a sense, we're all European. I'm a I'm a European, right? Yes. One way or the other, I'm. I speak English. My forebears come from Ireland and Germany. I'm part of that Christian European culture that got spread all over the world. Well, it's still there, and it's still waiting to be activated. And we have to be able to activate it because, in order to break the Jewish hegemony over our cultures that is destroying us. We have to be able to do this. We're not going to survive if we don't.
0: Well, do you know, interesting that you've called yourself a, a European. I'd like to pick up on that and return to uh, at the very beginning of our talk. We talked about the category of white. Yes. And um, it's interesting. A lot of the responses to your interpretation of this that I have heard Is that, well, when we say white, you know, all we mean is, you know, that, all we mean is European, you know, all we mean is, you know, uh, German, English, Italian, all of that together under an umbrella term, recognizing that we have some kind of uh, fundamental unity, you know, amongst these people, differences, yes, but some kind of fundamental unity. Uh, What response do you have to that, that white is that description is just an alternate version of European effectively?
1: No, it's completely different because it's it's racial and it's biological and it's a, bi- a form of biological determinism. And th- this racial, well, first of all, there is no racial, in that sense, unity yes. in, in Europe. You're imposing something, an American category on Europe where it simply does not apply because there were no black people in Europe. Yes. You can only be white if there's a black person around. Okay, so basically what you're doing is disguising, obliterating the real source of unity in Europe, which is Christianity. It's not whiteness, (laughs) that's ridiculous. What does it, first of all, what does it mean to be white? What does it mean? Does it mean you act in a certain way? Well, they would say, yes, look at the, well, the Europeans act the way they do because they stopped being barbarians and started being Christians. If it weren't, I've said this before, but if it weren't for Christianity, if it weren't for Catholicism, my uh, uh, the Germans would still be chasing pigs through the forest because that's what they did before they became Christians. It yes. was not a particular, it was not a pretty place. And if you want some indication, I did the, this neo-paganism that you find in movies like Midsommar, the Swedish film. Uh, I did a review of that and go into the, you know, the ugliness of uh druid culture <laughs> uh, they had to break it was it was the people of ireland were given the courage they were given the the dignity to break with Ju- druid culture and establish monasteries because of the liberating effect of catholicism and now you have <laughs> oh my god <guide> the irish <laughs> they're going back like the the dog returning to its vomit they're going back to the vomit of paganism and they're celebrating beltane and they're painting themselves blue and jumping up and down <laughs> it's enough to make a grown man cry
0: yeah well yeah if we if you know if i didn't laugh i would cry but uh, can i uh, bring it back then to um something that we've talked about uh, off air which is art so can we pick up from uh wherever you want middle ages the late middle ages and how how it develops into what we know as the Renaissance and how the art develops uh, during that period. We already talked about the perspective, right, where the icon went from this two-dimensional golden background to this more dramatic uh, uh, painting of perspective, right, including perspective. How how was Italy transforming? How was art transforming? How did Christianity impact that?
1: Okay, so what is art? Art is mimesis this is aristotle's term he understood it it's never going to be anything else but mimesis which is art is imitation of nature and so over this period of time in europe in italy specifically you had incredible advances in technique that would allow you to imitate nature And I've already mentioned Giotto as the beginning of this. And so at a certain point, you get uh, just a a culture that would build on the achievements of past generations and achieved unprecedented ability to imitate nature, the realistic pictures of the sort no one had ever seen before in human history. Okay, now there's a problem here uh, and the problem comes with the human form, in particular, the female form yes uh you uh you can get very good at painting the female body and uh uh, this is mimesis but it's so good that you can have because of fallen human nature concupiscence kicks in and this could become an occasion of sin and if there's one guy who understood this it was Titian. he's in venice at this time his best friend uh Arezzo is a kind of con man poet. He was a hugely important figure, literary figure at the time. Uh, and he was also Europe's first pornographer. What are the and years by,
0: we're talking about?
1: We're talking about the uh the the 16th century. Yes. Heading toward uh like the time of the um the the, the time that uh, the reformation is starting in in germany up in germany there's a crucial uh, connection here too so you have all so we have the printing press okay we have uh uh basically the ability now to do woodcuts and put them in books you'll print the book the woodcut will be printed and there are all sorts of pornographic drawings in palaces in rooms that are not open to the public and you can send, and so basically what Arezzo did was collect a lot of these from the Palazzo di Te, and put them in to, uh, obscene poetry and obscene pictures, and he published the book. Well, Titian's watching this happening, he understands what's going on, and he, he is Titian's artwork is a kind of allegory of this. I already mentioned uh, Noli Me Tangere, If you look at it, it's basically, we we don't have a picture here, a picture's worth a thousand words, but basically (laughs) Jesus Christ is standing there. He's risen from the dead. There is Mary Magdalene, and her hand is reaching out, and it's pretty clear her hand is reaching for Christ's genitals. Okay, and this would be a natural thing to do because you want union with the beloved and the most obvious form of union is sexual union. And Christ has his hand and he puts his hand, deflects that hand, and at that point, her eyes rise up and look at Christ's eyes. So you have this sublimation of sexual desire into some type of higher form of love, uh, sacred love. This is an incredibly profound psychological statement here. I showed it to a Muslim lady I knew and she didn't have a clue because they don't have any sophistication when it comes to understanding pictures. She thought I just had a dirty mind. I think that was that was her <laughs> conclusion. But anyway, this is what this is what uh, we're now having a crisis here. Uh, we can see this crisis because it can very quickly tend toward pornography. And at this point, you know, it's 1525, German mercenaries basically sack Rome. And uh, they not only sack Rome, they have take their horses and they stable their horses in the Sistine Chapel. <laughs> which Michelangelo had just painted, and they have never seen this type of thing. These are German Protestants who have a grudge against Rome to begin with. And I'm saying, they went back to Rome and they started saying, well, you wouldn't believe what I saw in a chapel. Now, they were many ways right because there were cardinals at the time, including uh, 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 Federico Borromeo, who thought that that chapel was, the drawings, the nude figures, were inappropriate for a chapel. Uh, in another context, it might be okay. And then on top of that, that you have Karen and the River Styx. What gospel is that in? <laughs> uh, so you have all of this kind of pagan and all this type of stuff. It was a huge controversy among the cardinals at that time. And uh, so you can imagine what basically uh, illiterate German mercenaries are going to think. And so what you have at the same time, the pornography is arising in Italy. You have iconoclasm breaking out in the Germanic countries. And now there's going to be a crisis because what are these religious images uh, worthwhile? Or are they just uh, temptations, occasions of sin? And at this point, the church had to step in. This is the time of the Council of Trent. And basically the church rescued art. Yes. From the iconoclast. I mean, they were wrecking, wrecking buildings. What happened to the cathedral in Antwerp? uh uh, uh, you'll you'll pardon the expression but it was english hooligans and calvinists (laughs) and anabaptists who basically wrecked the cathedral and they swept northeast and they wrecked basically every church they could find and this is a a serious crisis and the church steps in and says draws the line and basically says there is a purpose to art Uh, it can increase devotion and we should not throw the baby out with the bathwater, and the the man who embodied this was Rubens, uh, who yes. acts, was the genius, who was the epitome of the counter-renaissance and the the power, the Catholic power behind the Catholic rena- the, uh, counter-renaissance, which is basically, okay, well, you're going to take stained glass windows out well we'll show you and we'll do something like uh, the Baroque uh, yes. uh, church. close. Uh, I, I, one of my deep uh, spiritual experiences was visiting Kloster Ettal in Bavaria. This a, a fantastically complicated and a unified Baroque architecture uh, of that uh, the the monastery on the Danube that I visited Kloster Melk. Take just Google that. Google the library. Google the church at Kloster Melk, and you know what I'm talking about. This incredible, and it saved art, and we had this outburst of art. Uh, that in music, uh, just the, the culmination. Yes. I, I don't know where. I mean, I'm saying that Rubens is the epitome of how the Catholic Church saved the art world and and prevented uh, both pornography and iconoclasm from yes.
0: destroying it. Yes, the Counter Reformation is uh, one of the one of the rescuing periods of the church, and I must I must agree with you. Uh, well, I don't know what how you rank about the Baroque, uh, let's say uh, up against something like the the Gothic. You know, the earlier period. Some say that the the Gothic style is is a purer and a more Catholic style, but they also say that uh, ultimately the the style of the Counter Reformation, the Baroque style, is also quintessentially Catholic. I don't know where you stand on on one way versus the other, purely on. Uh, on your uh, taste grounds?
1: I, it's, it's, I, I, I'm not talking about taste. I don't, yes. I know, this is not a matter of taste. This is a matter of aesthetics, which is objective. Yes. And I'm saying you can, I, I mean, look, there is a development here. OK, I mean, basically, if you're talking about architecture, it's you have two pillars and a beam and that's a temple. You have two pillars and an arch and that's a Romanesque church and you have two pillars and a vault and that's a Gothic cathedral. So there's a, a technological development yes. that's going on here. But the, the achievement of the of the Gothic, this kind of soaring style where suddenly you, the heavens are opened up to you. Uh, that's a great achievement that's that's very spiritual but i mean the the great achievement here is that the catholic church is not exhausted by one style yes and, and the, the exuberance of the baroque is basically the exuberance of a world, of, of a of a church that is opening up to the entire world and we we can deal with it we can deal with this whole thing. We can deal with sending ships over to America. We can, we're, we are just really full of confidence because of the faith. And this is a, a, a really great expression of the exuberance of our faith. It's exuberant. It's the only word, I keep saying this word yes. over and over again, but that's the word that, that, that is used to describe that. It's, it's like, what is the essence of beauty? It's unity in mul- multiety. That's worse, I'm uh, not Wordsworth. Coleridge formulation. He was right. He was a genius in that regard. That's what it is. It's never going to be anything else. And where do you get that sense of absolutely crazy multiplicity, and yet it's all unified at the same time? So the more uh, multiplicity you have, and the more unity you have, the more beauty you have. And so the more exuberant you are, the greater the beauty. That's that's what I'm saying here.
0: Yes, and uh, how do you compare that exuberance to uh, what we have today in terms of you know post World War II architecture and and art?
1: Well, yeah, that's 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 the problem. That's (laughs) the problem. So so obviously it's after World War One. It's clear that the church is not in charge of anything that even countries that are nominally Catholic are really not thinking in a Catholic way. And so as a result they're going to be prey to ideologies and the the ideology at that post World War post war period was the machine. They were just fascinated by this mechanistic universe that they had inherited from Newton and other people like that. And so they started creating buildings that were machines. And that's precisely the word that Walter Gropius used. It was an apartment building was a von machine it was a machine for living in and uh, i i dealt with that but so there was this kind of a kind of radical simplification going back to the old ge- geometry uh basically of of the greek temple it, it's pretty clear it's just squares you know and and it, it, a a repudiation of all of the decoration uh that made uh, Baroque architecture or Le Beaux-Arts in, in France so appealing. Uh, and then it was promoted. Uh, the, the, it really came into its own after World War II. And after the, the defeat of Germany, uh, Walter Gropius's firm split off. One of his guys went to Moscow and he went to Harvard. And between the two of them, Bauhaus spread all over the world as the kind of uh materialist it's kind of a a materialist architecture that is cheap and can be built really quickly and so it was good for a place like germany which had been destroyed so you can build up everything real quickly it's just it's so boring everybody hates it Uh, and and that naturally led to a reaction but i think it's the 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 boring machine like nature of it is a sign that you're basically dealing with dealing with a materialistic culture that simply doesn't have the higher uh, notes the higher reach that a catholic culture has
0: yes i, I would i would say that it is uh subconscious and a, a conscious rejection of just the old world whatever whatever we have had left of you know the old world of of um you know, let's say throne and altar of any kind of uh you know catholicity christianity of the church it's it's a total repudiation of that both subconscious and not say conscience people people would just uh, say, do you know what, the old world, screw it. It has led us to World War One, World War II. They're deeply mistaken, but uh, I believe that's partially what, what also happened there. Um,
1: yeah, I think so too. And I think the Vatican too imposed it on the church. I've yes. done a lot. Uh, I, I've read, I recently read uh, Peter Zewald's, uh biography of Ratzinger, and I've been thinking a lot about Ratzinger and the role that he played uh, in imposing these narratives on the Catholic church through the Second Vatican Council. Yes, I'm working on a book on that right now. You're, or you can read my review of Zavald's uh, book in the next issue of Culture Wars, uh, and wh- I think it had a devastating effect. And I'm you basically because Ratzinger uh, internalized the commands of his oppressors, and I'm I mean the Americans here, the Americans who imposed ruthless social engineering on the German people uh, when Ratzinger was an impressionable young man. And uh, he accepted it, he accepted that narrative. And he, he f- there was a group of people in Germany that uh, simply didn't want to deal with the past anymore. They felt that they were guilty, That if they continued to dwell on the past, that everyone would just be wallowing in guilt. So let's make a break with the past. This is the type of rhetoric that you would find in, uh, Gaudium et Spes. Uh, Ratzinger was the man who basically orchestrated the overthrow of Ottaviani's preliminary documents. He had been brought to the council by Cardinal Frings, who was an old man at that time, who couldn't, who was blind, couldn't basically do anything other than be a mouthpiece for Joseph Ratzinger, who was the theological Wunderkind and he, uh, the Vatican II was his, his masterwork, and it turns out that it didn't have the effect. The implementation, I'm not challenging the, the the validity of any of the documents, but if there's an ambiguous passage in a document, as there is in uh, Nostra Tate, where it says the church opposes all forms of anti-Semitism, yes. uh, you're gonna to have to define that term You can't just say that. (laughs) What's that mean? We have to sign up for the ADL every time the ADL calls you an anti-Semite that the church is going to cheer. No, that's what happened. That's precise because of the ambiguity. That statement has to be interpreted in light of tradition. Every council statement has to be interpreted in light of tradition. And that's precisely what did not happen because uh, the Vatican Council became an excuse for a cultural revolution to sweep through the church. And, of course, that was the era when we got a lot of these ugly Bauhaus churches, too. So it's not surprising.
0: And, of course, the the horrors of the clown masses and the taking out of the tabernacle and the altar rails. Uh, it's just a total decimation of the church and of the liturgy also, of course. Uh, that, that, you know, we can talk about that. that. That may be, if you decide to come on uh, again, that may be a whole episode worth of a discussion of Vatican II and its consequences.
1: I would, I would be happy to send you the... Uh the 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 review and that i think that could serve as the basis for for a good discussion on yeah, these issues
0: so um all right if any of you want to send your questions this would be the time now and um, we're just going to wrap up i'll ask a couple of questions if there are any questions from the viewers we'll take them and then uh that'd be it so the question that i have is on literature i wanted to ask you about uh two authors in particular you know different time <laughs> uh, different time but uh, still, the ones that interest me. So Dante being one of them, and Tolkien being the other. What can you What can you tell us?
1: Well, Dante created the Italian language. He created. He, he was the. He created this Italian culture, gave it a unified worldview, in, uh, in artistic form. And the point of our art is to be sensual, something you can apprehend and something that gives you pleasure rather than uh, Aquinas uh, certainly came up with the breakthrough in thought, but it it had to be implemented, and Dante did that for the for the uh, for the italian people i mean this was the epitome this was the most significant cultural development in history up to that point no one had ever done anything like that and we we it's all seems to be in the past now but we we really need to go back and see the greatness of that achievement uh, to speak specifically of the english all you have to do is read shakespeare and f- see the awe that shakespeare felt toward italian culture all of those uh, Mm. uh, plays that are set in italy because italy was basically the center of uh the epitome of uh uh, progress in every area of life certainly in the arts okay so that's that's dante now tolkien i did i wrote an article about tolkien and i talked about tolkien's failed quest and got a lot of people (laughs) angry but we're talking about a a particular period in, in england uh, we're talking about The The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings. Uh, a man, Tolkien, uh, his real name was uh, Tolkien, which means bold in German. He's a German living in England at a time when England is at war with Germany. Okay, now, a South African, actually, but German, German heritage, okay? And he's in a bind, okay? And he's got this fertile imagination, and during the 1930s, he comes up with this uh, basically story that he starts to tell his children and then he writes it down and it got kind of popular and then he decides to do a sequel and that was uh, the lord of the rings and there, it's it's like uh, look who am i to say it's a great book uh, and it has so many great moments in it that uh, we all know about like the minus tirith and the defense of Minas Tirith and Denethor throwing himself on the funeral pyre saying the West has failed, and they're fighting courageously at the gates of, which basically it's Vienna, and when the Polish cavalry shows up, it's just a great (laughs) moment, okay? That's what Minas Tirith was about, the riders. what was it? Uh, The riders of Of Rohan. Rohan, yeah, of Rohan. Well, that's the Polish cavalry. Okay, but there's a central image there, and this is the problematic part of Tolkien. The image is the ring. Well, what's the ring? What's the ring symbolized? And now, first of all, uh, Tolkien was a little bit dishonest here, <laughs> okay, because some people noticed, well, wait a minute, Wagner wrote uh, an opera about that, didn't he? And yes. when they bring that up to Tolkien, he says, oh, that's got nothing to do with it, it's just because they're both round. Well, Tolkien <laughs> did go, he did go to uh, Wagner, he uh, went to those operas as a young man, and he was completely bowled over by them, which is sh- obvious. Uh, but there's a problem here, and I could never figure out what the ring was in Tolkien. And I didn't realize this until I really sat down, like I had I had done work on Wagner and Dionysus Rising, but I just focused on uh, Tannhäuser and uh, Tristan and Isolde. And when I finally sat down and started listening to the Ring cycle, uh, this Das Rheingold. I thought I understand the Ring. It's perfect. You you have five minutes. It's been twenty years of reading Tolkien, and I couldn't understand that Ring. Five minutes into Wagner's Rheingold, I understand perfectly what the Ring is. Okay, so it's basically uh, a myth, a mythic explanation of capitalism. Uh, the, uh, Wagner was a revolutionary. He took part in the revolution of 1848 which was a revolution against capitalism Engels was right and bishop von kettler were right they all agreed this had nothing to do with the ancien regime this is capitalism that is the problem here and wagner was a revolutionary and that revolution failed and he ended up going to switzerland and mulling it over too long i think he should have written it quicker but uh, what, what are the the mythic roots of capitalism? And it's in the first five minutes of Das Rheingold, where the Rhine maidens are swimming there, and Alberic shows up. The Rhine maidens are guarding the Rhine gold. The gold is the national wealth, and it's at the bottom of the Rhine, which is the river that symbolizes Germany, and they're guarding it. And they're not the best guards in the world uh, because uh, they're kind of sexy and and. Uh, alberic shows up and alberic falls in love with them and they spurn him and he's so angry he's i'll show you and he steals the gold now this is called privatization and we've had a lot of experience with privatization but the thing that everybody knew at the time of wagner's operas was that alberic was a jew and so who is who is alberic well he's basically the rothschilds and what happened when Napoleon went uh, marching through the German principalities? The Prince of Hesse Castle comes to Rothschild, the old Amschel, and says, take my money. So that Napoleon doesn't get it. He immediately ships it over to London, and uh, uh, Nathan makes a killing betting on the consul. Now, what happened here? Uh, what, did, what did Albert do? He took the gold and turned it into a ring. He took, so this is the gold standard. I, I don't want to be really crude and literal here, but it's the gold standard where, okay, I'm going to put the <laughs> ring, I'm going to put the gold in the bank, and I will lend it to you at usurious interest. And that's how Alberic enslaves everyone. So he's got all these little dwarves. They're tinkering away. You can hear the little hammers banging on gold in the <laughs> basement there uh that's how the jew gets control of everyone now this is clear in wagner and tolkien is really conflicting. now if you read um the hobbit it's pretty clear that the dwarves are jews yes
0: he even speaks it's, of it in an interview
1: that's right and and uh, and uh peter jackson t- turned it into zionism in that stupid <laughs> rendition really stupid rendition of but anyway, I don't want to bad mouth Peter Jackson. So it's it's Jews. Uh, well, at this point, uh, look, the, Wagner feels that the Jews are the enemies of the German people. They captured them through usury. And there's a, a, a case can be made that they did the same thing in England. But we're now talking about the run up to World War II and Tolkien can't really bring himself to do this. And so he, he wrecks his own symbol. He wrecks his own symbol. By making it basically incoherent, I think that the the ring in Tolkien is incoherent, and I think that the whole thing suffers. Even though there's great there are great moments in it, I think it suffers because of that incoherence. It's more coherent in The Hobbit, which is not as great a book as uh, uh, Lord of the Rings, but it, it's it's still there. He couldn't. He had to defend the Jews because they were being persecuted by the Nazis. He didn't want to be considered a, a German turncoat, you know? <laughs> he he wanted to be considered a loyal member of the British Empire. He was a don at Oxford. And so he compromised his art to be respectable. That's my take on Tolkien.
0: One thing I want to, to connect it with, this idea that um... Uh, you've spoke about, which is today, you know, the the foot soldiers of the regime, the latest craze is the homosexual, yes, that is the foot soldier of today's regime. And uh, to do with Tolkien, you know there's this, throughout the books and even the films, this, this relationship develops, of course, between Sam and Frodo, and they are really inseparable, and they go through war, they go through destruction, death, everything for years and years and then they come back and they have this uh, you know inseparable bond between each other and what you have is you know the modern perverted uh, basically Jew mind g- taking this story of, of true paternalistic uh, kind of love and care for each other through war and they basically turn it try to turn it into a homosexual story what's your take on that on these articles no, saying that- look at Frodo and Sam
1: no, that's outrageous. That's projection. That's yes. that's that's their dirty mind projecting their own dirty mind on something that's not there. Tolkien was very clear. He said, that, "What what what did the term Batman mean?" In uh, I was Kaiser Bill's Batman. It was your servant, basically, and and uh, officers had servants, and they were loyal people, and that's the that was Sam Gamgee. It was his Batman in uh, in World War One. And he just thought that the, this was little England. That, uh, the, the Shire is little England, yep. the same thing that uh, uh, Chesterton talked about. Uh, valorized, the little guys who are being, it's the same thing hap- happening now. It's like the, little, uh, the, the, the white people over here who are <laughs> demonized because uh, they're not on board, because the, uh, the certain groups hate them and they wanna destroy them uh these were the poor people in in england the little englanders who held the place together and did all the 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 ba- were, were essential in these big battles and never got any credit for it that's that's sam sam Gamgee. that's who he is
0: okay well um, just going to take one or two questions from the audience and then we'll we'll finish off restoring the Faith asks How important is art and aesthetics in the home and for raising children? And how can one avoid the drab modernism in our made in China world?
1: It's extremely important. And this is where the the mother, the mother comes in, uh, because the mother is the one who's in charge of the household. And she is responsible for creating beauty in the house. Uh, this, this will form the child will form the child in a way that that no one knows. It it will have an unconscious formulation and the child will understand order and the relationship between order and beauty. Uh, An example uh, that I've seen personally was, I, I played Irish music for, 16 years in a local pub and uh, went up to uh, Grand Haven Michigan uh, met some friends up there and they all had little children and I said you know what you should do you should play Irish music because there are a million different tunes and 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 they actually did what I said for the first time someone actually actually implemented what one of the ideas that I had and it was a spectacular success so you. You have no idea of what it's like to see uh, stand there and well, look this three-year-old who can hardly talk to you playing a, a tune on a flute, because they have this intuitive, you, you, you can do this, it goes to their mind and it organizes your mind before you can even understand what organization is. You live in an orderly universe because that melody has a beginning, it has a middle, and it has an end. And you feel a sense of catharsis after you played it. And these, you can do it when you're three years old. This is t- the type of thing that has to happen in the household, and it's got to, you have to break with the electronic distractions in order to do this. So the big challenge when I was raising my children was television, so okay, we never had a television. And I, unfortunately, I came late uh, to music. I played in a rock band in Germany in the '70s, and I played folk music. But the the the, the thing that got played here was the uh, f- trumpet companies and Elkhart would sell you brass instruments, and you played in a brass band, and that that wasn't con- that wasn't really conducive to to the household. But when we finally got to the Irish music. Uh, We got these instruments from my wife's mother's house and we had a fiddle and my youngest son played the fiddle and my Russian daughter-in-law played the accordion and I played the guitar. And we just had a a great moment here where we could all play this music together in the family. We could play it at pubs. We could play it all over the place. It was great because it helped form the mind of of those children at a very uh, early and impressionable age. So they're just two examples. I'm telling you about how important art is, is basi- in basically creating, forming your children, and using the household as a way of uh, making them understand uh, beauty and order.
0: Um, my um, Michelle Schlaffer, I hope I pronounce that right, asks uh, your opinion, Dr. Jones, on uh, Bishop Williamson, and asked uh, asked also extends that question and asks on specifically on the Holocaust affair that Bishop Williamson has been involved in?
1: This is a very, very important issue. It's extremely important. And I, I'm writing about it now. Okay, uh, because basically uh, what happened is that uh, the Bishop Williamson was lured into a trap in Germany. Uh, I believe it was 2009. Okay, Ratzinger was made Pope, Ratzinger was determined to heal the schism, the Lefevreite schism, when Lefevreite consecrated those four bishops. And so he lifted he was he was going to lift the excommunications. Okay. Now there's a whole Williamson story. I was I went over to London, Wimbledon. I was actually at Wimbledon, where the SSPX has their headquarters, yes. and I met with Bishop Williamson. And I said, uh, it's "Time to heal the schism." After, because Ratzinger had lifted the excommunications, and he said to me, uh, "Well, as a matter of fact, I have a letter from Rome on my desk, and it says I accept Vatican II in light of tradition." I said, "Well, go up and sign it, and then we'll talk about tennis." Well, he then spent the next three hours explaining to me why he couldn't sign that letter. I mean, it's absolutely crazy. A great moment came and went. I told I, I did. I tell him then, but he was like the like the Jews, uh, who were blind when the moment of their visitation came. He just uh, had a great moment, which passed. Okay, okay, but that that was after what he ha- happened is that he was lured into a trap in Germany. Swedish film crew. This is what he told me, uh, had come to interview him. Uh, he's in Bavaria. Uh, the Swedish film crew says, "Okay, all done." Uh, Uh, They start packing up their equipment, and then the guy says, and by the way, what do you think about the Holocaust? And Williamson at that point says, well, I think maybe 300,000 Jews died. And at that point, he broke the law Uh, in Germany. It's bad law, but he broke it, and uh, that was in the can. Okay, the Swedes were involved in a plot here against the church. So as soon as the word gets out that they're going to lift the excommunications, they release... Uh, The tape and then the press goes crazy and basically uh, headlines are uh, Pope Benedict allows Holocaust denier in back into the church. (laughs) That was the headline. Now, this is uh, the Holocaust. The Holocaust is I'm writing a book on the Holocaust narrative. It was part of the social engineering that took place after World War II. it It's been weaponized. It's a weapon and it got wielded as a weapon and the papacy of Benedict never recovered. And it never recovered because he could not deal with the term. Okay, now, if I let's go back to what I said about St. Louis. If I tried to debate uh, that uh, conflict on racial terms, I would have lost. The church at this point should have said, well, uh, excuse me, but what is Holocaust denial? Would you explain that to me? <laughs> uh, I, as far as I can tell, it was created by this Jewish lady by the name of Debbie Lipstadt at the Coca-Cola University in Georgia as a way of covering over the fact that uh, the Jews could no longer defend their story anymore. So they had to make it illegal. And then that led to the Irving trial and so on and so forth. This yes. is a lady who's made a career out of basically uh, beating David Irving in her libel suit. Okay, so the church should have said, "Well, wait a minute. Uh, what I, I, I'm not sure what you mean by Holocaust denial. It is certainly not a Catholic term. The Catholic Church cannot pronounce infallibly on the number of people who died in World War II, and they should. There's uh, there's no reason why we should. So, what's your next? What's the next question? Uh, this has nothing to do with lifting excommunication. Yes Instead, you had the." Uh, father lombardi the worst press secretary in the history of the catholic church stumbling all over himself trying to say no no we're not holocaust deniers no we it was a a disaster and rotzinger's papacy never recovered just never recovered and i think there's a direct line between that williamson affair and the fact that he resigned he simply could not cope with the situation i'm saying this I, the the, Ratzinger was the successor of John Paul II. John Paul II was elected to deal with the situation. And the situation at that point was communism and Poland was a communist country. And he went there courageously uh, to Warsaw in June of 1979 and uh, basically declared war on atheistic materialism and won. And I know now that basically Ratzinger was chosen as a successor to do the same thing with Germany, to deal with the German problem. Do you know what the German problem is? Uh, check out the Synod. Check <laughs> out the Synod, there's synodal Nordelweg in Germany and you'll know what the German problem is. You're talking about the complete collapse of sexual morality in Germany, uh, something that I had a front row seat to when I was a teacher there in the 70s. So I, I'm saying that that what Ratzinger, this is crazy. I know, but what Ratzinger should have done is deal with the issues in Germany, which is basically guilt, the Holocaust and that whole constellation of basically social engineering that had been imposed on Germany by the Americans after world war two. He didn't do it because he didn't do it. It came back and it destroyed him.
0: And, uh, Honestly, Dr. Jones, I think that uh, it doesn't just, that situation doesn't just bind the church, it it permeates everything, literally politics, our morality, the way we see ourselves, until we can honestly deal with World War I, World War II, Nuremberg, until we can speak honestly about what happened and these issues, we will never liberate ourselves from this prison.
1: Amen, brother. I agree with you. I mean, look, look at the Canadian thing, for God's sake. It's a trucker protest. And what's Trudeau do? Oh, they're Nazis. And, and the Jewish, the Jewish lady, uh, 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 member of parliament stands up and says, "Hong honk means Heil Hitler. Everything, <laughs> everything has to get related to the Holocaust. And everything, and Ratzinger at the Second Vatican Council basically imposed the Holocaust narrative on the church and it came back and it destroyed them. Because he couldn't articulate what was really going on.
0: What is the latest work? What, what what kind of latest work you're working on? So, in the Cultures Magazine or your books, what can we expect from you in terms of topics? And
1: well, we just dealt with one of them. There's a we're going to deal with. I mean, it's dealing with Ratzinger. And that, that the review of Zavod's book. Uh, 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 I've dealt with things, uh, the beginning of the Holocaust narrative, the stories, uh, the two films that be uh, dealt with that. We're talking about we have to face up to these facts right now because this empire is going down the drain. And we have to do something to basically pry these guys' hands off the steering wheel. We have to come back to some type of sanity. And that's the gist of what I've been doing. What do you, Logos Rising. I wrote that after years of basically going to Iran and thinking, can we have a conversation with people like this? Can we have a universal conversation in the world? Well, if we can if it's if it's anywhere possible, it's only going to be possible with a term like logos and going back to the meaning of that term. So you know, one thing leads to another. Logos was about uh, the transcendental of the true. Uh, The dangers of beauty is about the transcendental of of, uh, of beauty. These are all transcendentals. They lead to God. We have to reopen this transcendental dimension to our lives. And this is not the point in history to go back to the vomit of racial materialism. That's really stupid. I think anybody who does it is the unwitting victim of basically government operations. I think that's what these things are really about.
0: Dr. E. Michael Jones, best-selling Catholic author, lecturer, editor of the Culture Wars magazine. Thank you so much for joining Friends of Aquinas today.
1: Thank you. My pleasure.